Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 114. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Back this week to discuss a film celebrating a monumental birthday. A huge anniversary. For this week, it is the 80th anniversary of Walt Disney's Fantasia. Now, we were not around 80 years ago, so when I say I can't believe this film is 80 years old, let me explain what I mean by that. This film, to this day, is so culturally significant and significant to the film industry as a whole that I just feel that it it doesn't have the feel of a film that's 80 years old. Right, because she looks great for her age. I think, too, what may be in your head is Fantasia 2000. Yeah, maybe. Because they did that whole re-release, so it really doesn't feel like it's 80 because that that sort of just came out. Yeah. Even though that at the time of this recording is now 20 years old. Yeah, but I mean, so much of what they did here really did change the game. Right. Well, it's a miracle they even did anything because we had just talked about Fun and Fancy Free a couple of weeks, months. I'm not even sure. It's all a blur at this point. Uh, but we recently reviewed that one and... What they were up against with the production of Mickey and the Beanstalk was that they were going for a full-length animated feature, and because of the war and budget cuts, they ended up doing it as a short. Similarly, with Sorcerer's Apprentice, it was supposed to be a silly symphony, and it was getting too expensive to produce, so they ended up building Fantasia around it, which is kind of strange to me because it feels like this was Walt's plan all along because he wanted to do something where you would see the music and hear the pictures. And because he was such an innovator when it came to visuals, you would think this was the grand design. Yeah, because unlike parts of Fun and Fancy Free, even by today's standards, this does not feel like a cheap movie. Let's just call it what it is. Exactly. Fun and Fancy Free feels every bit of they were doing the best they could with what they had to work with, as demonstrated by the creepy ventriloquist dummies. Yes. This felt like it was meant to happen all along, especially because they had so many innovations and technological achievements that you really can't imagine that they were working with a budget constraint with everything that they were doing. Like, for example, they had 800 paint colors going into this film. That's a huge budget in and of itself. Right. Not to mention the fact that, you know, they basically, for a lack of a better term, invented surround sound. They called it Fantasound. It was the first real stereophonic sort of surround sound system there were no movie theaters that were equipped with this. So Fantasia, for all intents and purposes, was a traveling road show in which Disney would have to lease out an entire movie theater to install this technology that had not yet been seen. And when you lose foreign distribution because of the World War, that really does eat a huge chunk of your revenue. 
that coupled with there's a war on and people don't really have the money to even go and see a film. I can only imagine how much Roy was tearing his hair out with this one. Well, I'm sure that Roy is resting peacefully now knowing that Fantasia, as of the time of this recording, is the 24th highest grossing film of all time. Thanks in part to 80 years worth of re-releases. I think that's something that's probably very hard for today's audience to understand because even now we're seeing recouping your box office dollars being phased out with things like Disney Plus and streaming services. So I think that that's something that people are going to start taking for granted because they're just getting this movie delivered right into their home. Right. And you have to wonder... Some of the cheap CGI that we've gotten used to seeing on some of the made-for-TV films, for the sake of saving money, you have to wonder if that's going to become a new normal. I certainly hope not. Also, I will never get used to cheap CGI. Yeah, of course not. All right, well, all right, so here's the thing. This movie, we're going to break this down vignette by vignette because for those who have listened to the show for a while... Thank you for coming back. For those who are new, thank you for joining us and thank you for finding us. Make sure you like the episode and share with a friend who loves Fantasia as well. Typically, we just do the plot of the film and then we review it. Sometimes, if it's a really convoluted thing, like something out of the MCU, we kind of break down the plot and then jump in with our say on it. This is so unique because it's just a series of vignettes. Like, this film has no story. (laughs) So it's going to be really interesting for us to delve into this one. Well, I like that they make a point of having a narrator explain that from the jump. And they break it down as such that there's three types of things that we're going to see. There's either a definite story, no specific plot, but definite pictures, and music that exists for its own sake. And the narrator, your master of ceremony, is Deems Taylor. And when he comes out... Now, obviously, this film is shot to appear as if you are at an opera or or you're seeing a stage performance. You sort of get that Mickey's PhilharMagic. This was really the groundwork for that fully immersive Mickey's PhilharMagic experience. But I have to imagine that people must have been blown away when they saw this for the first time. Right, because you feel, you're made to feel like you're sitting right behind that orchestra looking up at the stage. That's why if if that first shot does look a little wonky to you, it should, because it's not framed like a film should be. It's framed as if you are seated in the audience. But the picture is incredibly clear. Yes. That's something that was not lost on me. And, I mean, like I said, clearly meant to be as if you were at a stage show watching an orchestra conducted by Leopold Stokowski. Um, Okay, so I think we just get right into this here. Um, The first vignette that they have now mind you this is all put to classical music so the first piece of music that they play is Toccata and Fugue in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach and this is a really interesting way to start the film because 
it's hyper-stylized. And Stokowski and the orchestra, for all intents and purposes, are in shadow form. Like, they have, like, these colored lights that are projecting their shadows up on a screen. I think that was a really smart choice to lead in that way to get you used to this idea of shapes and colors and that not everything is going to have a full linear story. Um, I kind of wish that they would have married the instruments to the specific shapes and colors because once they take you out of the orchestra, you do just start to see objects forming. So I kind of wish that they had maybe picked a specific color that was associated with the strings or, or you did, you know, the warm colors with the brass and the cool colors with the woodwinds or something like that, just to, you know, maybe just give it a little bit more cohesiveness. But what I will say is that I'm glad that they didn't stick with the orchestra the entire time and that they did actually go to an animation because then I feel like it would have felt too much like a documentary and you probably would have lost your audience within the first three minutes. Well, I think that when they played with the colors, I think, especially with the warm and cool, they did it to evoke emotion. And I think it actually played very well off of the music and off of the pacing of what you were hearing. It had to be a nightmare to edit, I would imagine. Um, But I agree with you. When we get to the animation, I mean, you've got clouds, you've got instruments. It's Super abstract, very experimental. I think now it's brilliant, but at the time, to sort of piggyback off of what you were saying, I see where this movie was very polarizing because a lot of critics hated this movie. Yeah, and that's interesting that that's sort of what you gravitated to and that's what you took away from it was that the colors were playing to your emotions and now looking back yeah like I I do you know you do feel that aggression when the red comes on you're supposed to that's that's why they say don't ever paint a room in your house red right um but I guess you know me in my never-ending search of organization that's where my head went was whoa this is too abstract for me and that's just personal taste you know like I've never really gotten into the whole Pink Floyd or Grateful Dead thing. It's just not my cup of tea. Which I think serves to complement how groundbreaking the movie is, even here in the start, Right, that they were doing this in 1940, that Walt Disney thought to do this in 1940. And only in more recent history has it started to get appreciation, like you said, you know, going to see the uh, Pink Floyd laser light show that travels the country and really getting out there um, and sort of getting in your own head. I mean, you were given the disclaimer. Of, I mean, they did tell you exactly what it was that you were about to see. And that's really it. This entire thing is really just the introduction to the... It's an introduction to what you were about to see. Exactly. Um, so the next scene is the Nutcracker Suite by uh, Tchaikovsky. I think that the animation here is absolutely beautiful, and I think that it goes hand-in-hand. It is so perfect for this music in particular. This is always kind of a surprise for me. Not that I forget 
the Nutcracker is a part of Fantasia. But immediately I kind of started thinking that this feels so familiar. It should have been a feature. And I guess part of that is because the Nutcracker has been told so many times, not just as far as the ballet goes, but like they've adapted it to film so many times. It's just something that's been done and people are so familiar with. I'm surprised that they chose to go with it here. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it was an interesting way to depict the change of seasons, um, especially when you have the right of spring later on in the right, film. Right, right. Um, but you can tell specifically here more than any other vignette in this film, you can tell how much the animators truly loved being artists and where they could take a piece of music and they could interpret it a certain way because it wasn't necessarily based on a ballet or a fable. I mean, yeah, this was based on a ballet, but it was not a well-received ballet. A lot of people were not totally familiar with it, so they could really let their minds go and play with it a little bit, which I think is something that they also mentioned in the film, that this is sort of a... This is a love between composers that are that are expanding their creativity and artists that are really just thinking outside the box. Well, I think that's also how this came up is that Disney had a chance meeting with the conductor and he was just telling him about the project offhand. He was like, all right, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. But as far as the Nutcracker goes to, to touch on what you said about the animators just having a love for the craft. Not only are we given the story in the context of the ballet, but the the piece of music that they chose here, I believe, and forgive me because it's been a minute since I've seen the Nutcracker, um, they're bringing gifts, I believe. So it's the Chinese tea and the coffee from Arabia. So I'm surprised that they didn't take that literally. Like you would think they'd do something like Sugar Rush from Wreck-It Ralph and really put them in like a candy land almost. Here, um, I'm reminded a lot of Alice in Wonderland in the Golden Afternoon and I think more naturally um, Pinocchio because the fish looks just like Cleo. And I think that comes from, you know, you're having the same animators work on all of these different films. But what I like about this section is that where the first piece felt very abstract here it's still abstract but we have a very clear world that we're in yeah this is far easier to follow exactly because in the first vignette there is nothing to follow there just really isn't it's completely open to your interpretation. So I think this this satisfies my OCD a little bit more. Moving on, we have The Sorcerer's Apprentice by Paul Dukas. And this was based on a poem from 1797. And it's... You forget, it, when you haven't seen this movie in a long time, that The Sorcerer's Apprentice is the Probably the only thing people think about, by and large, when you say the word Fantasia, and it's buried in the first third of the movie. Yeah, you forget, and it feels like a long time before you get to it. I mean, I can't imagine why they didn't lead with this. I have no idea. But if you, or, or close with it, or close with it, because 
it's it's your star. It's it's Mickey Mouse. It's the star of the show. And not just that, you've got the sorcerer modeled after Walt himself. Yeah. I mean, what do you say about the sorcerer's apprentice? I forget that Mickey has an axe. That was a little <laughs> jarring and that he he attacks the broom and that's how you end up with so many of them. But I mean it's oh boy. It is probably the best Mickey Mouse short ever produced. I I don't not I mean you have a lot of great Mickey Mouse shorts, but this one is probably the best. And it's got very little dialogue. It's completely action driven. I mean, for God's sake, look no further than at MGM Studios. You had the sorcerer's hat, and you see the sorcerer's hat with the Mickey ears sold everywhere. I mean, this this is probably the most significant Mickey short ever ever put to screen. And they always do the brooms, whether it's at Disney Springs or whether it's topiaries. They always have those brooms somewhere. And like, as soon as you, I think this is, you know, the mark of how great this film is. As soon as you see them, you hear them. This music is married to that visual. There's no separating the two at all whatsoever. And I think what's interesting about it is that in this case, they did the story first and composed the music to it. So it just goes to show you how much stronger it is when you have your animation done and you're working with a composer to do the music, to to really find that groove and to find the character in the music. I think, you know, probably the best example that we've talked about this recently is um, Pirates of the Caribbean because we've gushed over that soundtrack and, and how perfect it is. But I think there's a difference. I'm not hating on the classical music, but this one just feels different because the music was made for it. Yeah, and the animation still holds up. It's incredible. This does not feel like something that was animated 80 years ago. It's still visually stunning. This is where Walt Disney, much like John Hammond, spared no expense. (laughs) And it's not lost on me that the only applause in the film is given to Mickey Mouse. I actually hadn't noticed that. Oh, really? Yeah, I like that they sort of made him leap out of the short and and bring him into the concert, but I didn't I didn't even pick up on that. But I guess that's why there's applause because it's the only other entrance aside from yeah. the beginning when the orchestra comes on stage. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about pauses for a second. The Rite of Spring, Igor Stravinsky. Okay, this particular short has an incredibly long intro from Deems Taylor and I understand why he's on screen for so long explaining what people are about to see but it really slows the pace of the film down to the point where it comes to a grinding halt yeah, you do kind of live in that narration for a while. I'm wondering if that's why they paired it this way and it's coming right off of Mickey, not just in Sorcerer's Apprentice, but Mickey actually coming into the orchestra just so you have 
they they probably needed a little bit of a lift here. And how better to lift the audience than to have an extraordinarily long intro and then watch an asteroid kill the dinosaurs <laughs> after they kill each other? Now it's not our dino, um, but the galactic animation that you see throughout, and more specifically in the beginning. I mean, wow, it is so impressive. We're showing constellations and all that. It looks real. Yeah, this is where they also started using the special effects. I think they used actual mud on the cells to create some of the the slides towards the end. Yeah. Um, and one of the other innovations that they had for this one was that they were also painting some of the special effects on the back of this, the cells so that it sort of shown through mm -hmm. like if you chipped at the paint and you had a color underneath it gave it an entirely different effect sure the animation is great certainly it pulls no punches as you watch that tyrannosaurus rex kill another dinosaur but i hate to say it because as good as the animation is this runs on forever and ever and it is a total pace killer we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. Yeah, it it totally brings the movie to a grinding halt. While it is long, I do feel like this tells the most complete story. And maybe that's because it really happened. And that's why, you know, it's just something that's easier to, to identify. Because that's not to say that The Sorcerer's Apprentice doesn't tell a complete story. It does. But... I guess because it's giving us the entire life cycle of the dinosaurs, I feel like this is the most cohesive one. Yeah, and I think you're right. Because you have a frame of reference and because you know historically what happens, you can sort of anticipate it a little bit more. So yeah, it would, on, that, on those merits alone, it would tell a complete story. And then you get an intermission. I actually appreciate that they left that in. Not the entire intermission. No, but you don't sit there for 15 minutes, but I appreciate that they didn't just cut around it and that they're still giving you that authentic experience. Yes, where Taylor goes, and now we will have a 15-minute intermission. And they show all of the musicians leaving, and it just shows the title card for a few moments. Um, much needed, but the soundtrack that they're playing underneath it is quite fun. But I would imagine I needed an intermission sitting on the couch. I can't imagine <laughs> what it must have been like sitting in a movie theater, seeing something like this for the first time in 1940. I would imagine you had to get up and adjust your eyes for a little bit. It's like watching Avatar. Yes. Then we come back out of the intermission to the Pastoral Symphony by Beethoven. I think this is the most forgotten about vignette in the entire film but I think it probably plays to the music the story that they created with these sort of fantastical beings and sort of this Grecian story I think it plays to the music better than any other vignette in this entire film see it's interesting that you say that it's forgotten about because to me this was actually my favorite as a kid, and I think it's the most memorable 
because of the world building and the characters here, even more so, I guess that's it. When I think Sorcerer's Apprentice, I think Mickey. I really, until we sat down to do our review, I really don't tie Sorcerer's Apprentice to Fantasia the way that I should. Yeah. Um, so for me, my I used to watch this at my grandmother's house and this was probably one of the bigger takeaways. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of confusing. Now, admittedly, I'm not up on all of my Greco-Roman history <laughs> um, and certainly not the folklore, but obviously the story is about a celebration of Bacchus, the god of wine, but it gets interrupted by Zeus. And I have no idea why. I love Bacchus, by the way. He's one of the most fun characters. I would watch an entire feature. I, I hope they do that. If you need an idea for Disney+, Plus, I would do an entire feature of Bacchus. How much do you think they took from this Zeus when they made the Hercules full-length film? Because I think that, obviously, that art is made to look as if they are off of that Grecian pottery, but... I feel like, I'm not going to say they ripped him off, but I think they took a lot from him here. I mean, I'm not sure how much Zeus is open to interpretation. So it may just be because, you know, he's described in such a way in, in so many of the books that that's what they're pulling from. And he's just kind of going to look the same no matter what you do with him. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's kind of like I was talking about before with, um, with the Nutcracker, I kind of feel like this laid the building blocks for a lot of other later characters and worlds that we see. Aside from feeling like Hercules, this just in general feels the most like a regular Disney film to me because this short is different from the entire rest of Fantasia in that you actually see the music being sourced. So when they come out with Bacchus, they're playing horns and there's a parade. And what I realized is there's not one other vignette in Fantasia where you're actually seeing the music on the screen anywhere. Yeah, very true. I mean, they do the whole thing with the soundtrack and they show you the sound waves, but you're still not seeing an actual instrument. And I think that's why this feels so close to a musical. Yeah. So moving on to the next vignette, we have Dance of the Hours by Poncelli. I remember the ostriches and the hippos, but I think most of that is because of who framed Roger Rabbit when <laughs> R.K. Maroon has them on loan from Disney, Dumbo and half the cast of Fantasia. And this is the cast that they focused on. Oh, it's beautifully drawn. It's animals dancing. I, I mean, this it's like it's so weird to me as I'm sitting here and I'm looking at the amount of time that we have recorded this episode to think that we are basically at the end of this film. It's kind of mind blowing to me that we're going through this so fast. But I, how many times can you repeat? It's experimental. It's abstract. It's out of the box. It's experimental. It's abstract. It's out of the box. Because that's that was kind of the purpose of this whole thing. So it's so strange to me to be at this point already. 
Well, I do have a factoid for this one. Oh, so good. we can break from it's visually stunning. Yeah. Um, actually, um, what always amused me about this is that you have these large animals performing ballet, like by for all intents and purposes. And now I sound like you. Uh, you would not think of a hippopotamus as graceful and, and, you know, able to perform ballet. Yeah, not light on their feet. No, but um, what was interesting was that, I mean, and this is no secret in any Disney animated film, is that they always had the live action references, right? So what they were doing during this time, because a lot more um, women had started to come in to the Disney studios because, you know, the men were off fighting the war. The women were taking over the jobs, but also, you know, and, and that's certainly something that needs to be said here is that the visuals that were achieved in this film are largely in part because of the women, um, because they just had steadier hands. And where, where you see this animation, a lot of the times, if you'll see the rough sketch, you'll see the animation lines before it's cleaned up. They were so used to cleaning up the animators and then going in and painting. The women were actually able to paint right on the cells. So a lot of times if they needed to sketch something out, um, they didn't have to storyboard. They could just go right onto the celluloid and paint it. And what they were, they also started incorporating instead of doing the heavy, thick black line and then filling it in with the color. They started color matching the outlines. So what you got was the effect of shading. And I think you see that more in the Pastoral Symphony. Um, I think that Dance of the Hours does feel more like the traditional animation that we're used to. But the my long way of circling around to the funny factoid is that they were housing these women in apartments behind the Hyperion office. So when they were doing the live action references, they were, they were taking place at the apartment. So you would be looking out the studio and seeing all these ballet dancers in the backyard of, the, of these apartment buildings. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I kind of get it, though. You had women entering the workforce and they were working really long hours. So I get the idea of creating sort of a campus for everyone. Yeah. Moving on to the last vignette already. Night on Bald Mountain by Matas Muzorski. Muzorski. Muzorski? Muzorski? I don't know. We're going with Muzorski. Um, and uh, Ave Maria by Franz Schubert. Okay. You've got Chernabog unleashing unholy hell on everything in his path. I didn't think anything was quite as dark or as twisted as the Black Cauldron. And here is my proof that Disney was not afraid to go there even earlier than the mid-1980s in their identity crisis. At the risk of repeating myself, this is yet another example of how I think that Fantasia influenced something later on because I was immediately reminded of Black Cauldron. And I totally agree with you. I think people are asleep on Chernabog as a villain. Uh, I wish that they did a lot more with him. I, I wish that 
he had been a villain in another film. What I will say is that, again, everyone is asleep because Chernabog did have an appearance this year in the parks in the Halloween cavalcades. I think that because the villains are coming out and you've got, you know, the the Queen of Hearts and bowler hat guy coming out of left field, which yeah. was really exciting. They're on the float. And because Chernabog looks like a gargoyle, you think it's just a statue, but they actually incorporated him. And I love that. Yeah, I th- I'm surprised because you do get a disclaimer at the beginning of this film. You know, we talked about it a few weeks ago or months ago. Like I said, everything's a blur at this point where Disney is now put in disclaimers for some of its earlier works and no disclaimer for nudes. You have topless women in this scene. And I was astonished to see that because I don't quite remember that given it's been a while since I've seen this. But you would have thought that you'd have a disclaimer there or at least an advisory because you do have it in Frank and Ollie. And it's it's just a sketch in Frank and Ollie. Right. And here it's an actual moving character, a couple of them, actually. So I thought it was an interesting I thought it, it was an interesting observation that they kind of glossed over that one. Yeah. And I mean, you kind of can gloss over it in pastoral symphony because they're centaurs. So you can make the argument it's the animal, but then they did bother to cover them up as they're getting ready. And then the, the, their gentleman callers come in. Um, But here, no, you like see nipple and there is no warning whatsoever. Not at all. Well, besides showing a little skin, there are a lot of other things that this Ave Maria sequence does differently. It took six multiplane camera operators to achieve the depth in this one. They had five of the women from Ink and Paint on standby for repairs because of all the sliding back and forth on the cells. And it took three days and three nights consecutively to shoot. They finished this segment with hours to spare before they had to ship it off to New York for the premiere. Yeah, that was my other note on this segment was how much multi-plane camera there was here. And it's over. It's literally <laughs> over. The movie ends so abruptly. Like yes. you expect to see Deems Taylor come out and thank everybody for coming. And we hope you enjoyed it. And to watch the orchestra leave or maybe they bow. No, it just it's done. It's just over. And that's where I wonder, was that a budget cut? Like, did they not have enough money to finish and close it out? Or was it because they were playing it so close to the deadline? I mean, it's not like they animated this and then had to shoot that last scene and then send it off to New York. But I'm wondering if, because they weren't exactly sure how it was going to end, if Deems Taylor, if they didn't have a script and and they didn't have a way to seg him out of it. I don't know. Um, so here we are. Final thoughts on Fantasia. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? You can go first if you want. As a whole, this movie has no rewatchability. And I mean that as a whole. As vignettes, I could sit and watch a vignette. But to sit there for over two hours and watch this, to me, I just can't. But I don't. I don't want it to take away from how brilliant it is because 
it is a brilliant film and it's beautifully shot and the animation is stunning and the music and the composition, it's great. And it was ahead of its time. And I think it shows what a progressive genius Walt Disney was. And it was an achievement. And I said before, it must have been mind blowing to see this in the theaters. So I'm not poo pooing on it. It's a great film. But if I have two hours to spare to watch a film on Disney Plus, I can tell you right now, it's never going to be Fantasia. And I don't mean that to insult the film. It's just that with such a vast library and all that came after it, which, to its credit, would not have happened had it not been for this film. But with all of that out there, I'm never going to sit there and say, do you know what would complete my night? I'm going to make a bowl (laughs) of popcorn and watch two hours and ten minutes of Fantasia. Well, I'm glad you went first because our listeners will probably have turned us off by now before we get to to my two cents. Um, Because it grieves me to say that I do agree with you on a lot of points. Um, I think the individual parts of this film are better than the film as a whole. Um, I think, well, I, I will say this much. It's just not my cup of tea. And I mean, for for a visual person, I know that I should appreciate this film so much more than I do. But I think what I appreciate more is having done the research, I appreciate the process more. Um, I appreciate all of the contributions that Walt made, especially that, you know, he designed a sound system to, to play this on. And we're still using it to this day. And, um, you know, if you're interested, what I would really, I can't recommend it enough, is um, the book The Women of the Ink and Paint by Mindy Johnson. Um, she works for the Disney Archives. Uh, we learned about it when we got to take the studio tour in Burbank. And uh, it was relatively new at that point, And I was so excited and I couldn't wait to get my hands on it. And I thought it was just going to be like a, you know, just sort of, sort of like a, chapter book right instead when you got it for me it's this huge it's heavy it is so heavy and like you should almost wrap it in like a paper bag from the grocery store because it's like the size of a textbook from like high school it's huge it's a huge coffee table book it but it's gorgeous there's so many pictures and and the way that she breaks it down and highlights each of the women that was working and their contributions to the film it's it's a wonderful book um but that is where my appreciation of this film comes from. Not for the film standing alone. And I hate to say that because this was not only something that Walt touched, but this was such a pride and joy for him. But I think, you know, every director, every producer's got one, right? Where they try something experimental and the fans wish that you'd kind of stuck to your wheelhouse. And I'm not, I'm not saying we'd be better off if we didn't have it because I love Sorcerer's Apprentice and I can't imagine any Disney experience being complete without going to see Fantasmic. Um, so I'm certainly not sorry that we have it, but I wish that we had seen 
what it was going to be as either the Silly Symphony or the animated feature. Sure. And we're interested in knowing what you have to say about Fantasia. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up. But first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week, very Disney Plus centric. Yeah, a lot of new drops coming. Uh, First, we're getting another holiday comedy, which I'm excited about because I loved Noel last year. Yes. Uh, and I love Anna Kendrick. So this year, on December 4th, we're getting Godmothered, starring Isla Fisher and Jillian Bell. Then, this is probably what I am most excited for. We are getting a new series called Inside Pixar. Uh, so we know and love all of the Pixar stories, and now we're going to get a closer look at the storytelling. Uh, so I have to imagine this is going to be sort of like Into the Unknown, the making of Frozen, yeah. but this is the stuff that I eat for breakfast, and I just want to mainline it into my brain. And then we have another release. We got the trailer today, and now the release date for Black Beauty going to Disney Plus on November 27th. Confession, I've never seen Black Beauty. No? No. That was like a big 90s movie. You know what, though? Why would I have seen Black Beauty? That's that's exactly what it is. For whatever reason, like, the the 90s, they they produced Horse Girls. Yeah. And I feel like... If it was not a coming-of-age movie... And even that's debatable, because you had things like The Babysitter's Club... Well, I feel I I feel like or Little Women. I feel like there were movies made for the male audience and movies made for the female audience, and you had some of the big Disney blockbusters that bled over into both. But I feel like there was certainly a divide in the '90s for sure. All right, well, it's coming to Disney Plus. I, we'll watch it, I suppose. Um, I'm, it's not going to be the first thing I watch, but I suppose we will, and I probably should, I guess, watch the original. I don't know. You should be excited, though. Kate Winslet, uh, Winslet is in it. I am excited for Kate Winslet. So that's November 27th. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Don't forget to follow us on our social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monorail Radio. You can also always email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your podcast platform of choice. We are very hard not to find because we are basically everywhere. Um, so it's if you guys could throw us that, like I said, rate or review, and you could do that on Facebook as well. It's always a big help to the show. Thank you guys so much again. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.